For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now... Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Today, Congressman Andrew Clyde, Georgia District 9, and 53 original co-sponsors introduced the RETURN, which is an acronym, of course, for Repealing Excise Tax on Unalienable Rights Now. This is from Congressman Clyde's website, his press release in regards to the RETURN Act. Our Constitutional Rights Act to eliminate the federal excise tax on firearms and ammunition. In case my Democrat colleagues forgot, the Bill of Rights enumerates rights to which the government cannot infringe. Unquestionably, infringement exists when the government taxes those rights to limit the people's ability to exercise them, said Clyde. As assaults against American Second Amendment freedoms continue to emerge, so do treacherous threats that seek to weaponize taxation in order to price this constitutional right out of the reach of average Americans. I firmly believe that no American should be taxed on their enumerated rights, which is why I intend to stop the left's tyranny in its tracks by eliminating the federal excise tax on firearms and ammunition. Okay, we're going to stop here for a minute. I know you're probably confused. If you're in this conservation game, you probably see the federal excise tax on firearms and ammunition as a good thing, but we have all sorts of strong verbiage here, weaponized, lefties, Democrats, tyranny. So it may help if you listen to the rest of this in the tone of Boss Hogg from Hazard County, Georgia. It's not District 9, I'm sure, but it may help. I'm not going to do the voice. You need to do the voice. I'm just giving a suggestion out there. 
Okay, I'm going to continue on now from Congressman Clyde's press release here on his webpage, where he gives the background of the excise tax, which of course is Pittman Robertson. I don't know why they're not using that name. Currently, an excise tax is applied at the manufacturer level for every firearm and all ammunition sold in the United States that is purchased by anyone other than the Department of Defense and state and local law enforcement. This tax infringes on Americans' ability to exercise their Second Amendment rights and creates a dangerous opportunity for the government to weaponize taxation to price this unalienable right out of reach for most Americans a threat that is materializing by the day. Recently, Representative Don Beyer, Democrat, Virginia, introduced the assault weapons excise tax, which would impose a 1,000% tax on semi-automatic weapons. To restore the American people's Second Amendment liberties, Congressman Clyde's return, remember the acronym we started out with, will repeal excise taxes on firearms and ammunition, as well as bows and arrows. Since the current firearms tax revenue funds beneficial programs under the Pittman-Robertson Act, such as hunter education and environmental care, which, if you're asking, I've read every single thing there is to read on Pittman-Robertson and never ever have I seen it put that Pittman-Robertson funds environmental care. Just an odd thing that stuck out to me. This legislation redirects unallocated lease revenue generated by onshore and offshore energy development on federal lands which currently flows into the general fund to continue funding those important programs. So to sum this up, Congressman Clyde and his 53 co-sponsors want to do away with, as he says here, the federal excise tax on firearms, ammunition, bows, and arrows. Because a lefty liberal Democrat proposed tax on, quote, assault weapons. This is kind of interesting, right? Someone proposes a tax... And the response is to do away with taxes. It's an interesting playbook. First big scary thing we'll look at is the tax introduced by Virginia Democrat Don Beyer, which looks to drastically raise the excise tax on any semi-automatic weapon that does not use rimfire ammunition and is either capable of holding more than five rounds in a tube-fed magazine, which is attached, or uses detachable magazines that can hold more than 10 rounds apiece. That's the way I read the bill, just so you're aware. Please go read it for yourself. Just type in assault weapons, excise tax, representative buyer in the search bar. It'll pop right up. Now, back to Congressman Clyde's bill, which I also read in its entirety. What Congressman Clyde does not say in his press release is that Pittman-Robertson excise taxes are not the only wildlife funding taxes being repealed in his act. The act also adjusts all angling tax dollars, those ones covered in Dingle Johnson. And when Congressman Clyde says, don't worry, the wildlife funding will be taken care of through offshore oil and gas revenues, suggesting it's like a tit-for-tat trade, well, what he actually says in the act is that no matter what revenues are generated from offshore oil and gas or onshore oil and gas, the fund will be capped at $800 million. Which, you know, that's a big chunk of change, nothing to sneeze at. But for reference, Pittman-Robertson generated over $1 billion in 2020. And it's not the first time it's generated over a $1 billion. In 2020, former Secretary Bernhardt had this to say, Our conservation model is funded and supported by America's hunters, 
shooters, anglers, boaters, and other outdoor enthusiasts. These stewards of conservation generated nearly a billion dollars last year alone and make our country's conservation legacy the envy of the world. 2020 was a Trump year. We historically sell more firearms and ammunition when Democrats are in office. So it may be safe to assume that the Pittman-Robertson Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act, as well as the Dingle Johnson Wallet Brew Federal Aid and Sport Fish Restoration Act funds will raise even more. Meaning that if we cap it at $800 million, we're losing more and more during these Democrat years. And we're going to lose more during the Republican years. To continue on, gun sales are at unprecedented levels which would also suggest that this federal excise tax is not in any way hurting the gun industry. The National Shooting Sports Foundation, or NSSF, which represents gun manufacturers, has always been a proponent of Pittman-Robertson. And to get way back to the root of the issue, Pittman-Robertson was enacted in 1937 through bipartisan lines in both the House and Senate. It was darn near unanimous. It was not to impose taxes on firearms and firearm owners. It was to get funding for wildlife through the purchase of firearms. Yeah, it's a play on words, but there is a big difference. Even back in 1937, I just can't imagine a tax just to tax firearm owners would have gone anywhere. So, anyway... If you hate this tax from Representative Beyer out of Virginia, make sure your congressional representative knows about it. If you just hate all taxes, call your representative and tell them that you still love your hunting and fishing and we need to ensure the funding of habitat and wildlife some way, somehow. So, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater or cut our nose off to spider faces or, you know, say whatever buzzwords we want because you think the people want to hear them and you're desperate to get reelected. The point is, the return, repealing excise tax on unalienable rights now, our Constitutional Rights Act to eliminate the federal excise tax on firearms and ammunition act, I don't believe is about the Constitution. I honestly don't believe it's about firearms. Because what the hell do bobbers and tackle boxes have to do with firearms? Anyway, do whatever you want. But I am going to call my representative right now, just so you know how easy it is. Hi, this is Congressman Matt Rosendale. Thanks for calling my D.C. office. I'm sorry there was no one here to take your call, but if you leave your name, number, and a message, my team will return your call shortly. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you back in Montana. Congressman Rosendale, my name is Ryan Callahan. I live in Gallatin County. Uh, I'm calling in regards to the Return Act, of which you're a co-sponsor. As my representative, I'd really like you to withdraw as a co-sponsor. This bill is not, or act rather, is not representative of my interests. We need to find a better way to fund wildlife, not remove and restrict funding for wildlife. If you don't like excise taxes being, quote, weaponized, why don't we find ways to restrict that taxation, not eliminate funding that's been established since 1937 on behalf of wildlife and habitat. Thank you very much. Anyway, it's that easy. This week, we've got happy updates and trash, but first I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as you know, 
is sponsored by Steel Power Equipment, makers of the world's finest chainsaws. Doesn't matter if they consume gas and oil or run off clean, quiet battery power, they'll get the job done and have you looking like a pro. Visit an official steel dealer near you or check them out on all their social media sites for more info. Next thing I got to tell you about is the Meat Eater Land Access Initiative. We are still looking to find that perfect access project. We are raising funds. We have all sorts of cool stuff in the lineup. We just need to find that perfect spot. So be on the lookout for landlocked pieces of public ground, places dying for an easement, willing landowners. Anything counts as long as it provides more access to hunting and fishing. Submit a property or a spot at themeateater.com forward slash land access. Moving on. Last week, I told you about a California court that ruled that bumblebees are actually fish. This week, a New York court reestablished some sanity when it ruled that a famous Bronx Zoo elephant is not, in fact, a person. Animal rights groups have been fighting for years to release Happy, a well-known pachyderm who is currently incarcerated or, you know, living in the Bronx Zoo. They argue that because elephants are self-aware and intelligent, Happy is being denied her rights as a person by being unlawfully detained. The New York State Court of Appeals ruled 5-2 to two last week that Happy is not a human and must remain locked up. This means, I would like to point out, that there are at least two judges in New York who think elephants are people. Anyway, the group that brought the lawsuit, the Non-Human Rights Project, called the ruling out of touch with the times. They added that it was a loss for everyone who cares about ensuring our legal system is free of arbitrary reasoning and that no one is denied basic rights simply because of who they are. I'm poking fun at this story because, let's face it, I mean, it's funny. But I know the question of what makes humans and animals different is complex and super fascinating. And there are thoughtful, intelligent, well-intentioned people on all sides of this debate. This story shows that when that debate breaks out of the podcast studio and into the real world, things start to get a little hairy or gray and wrinkly in this case. If you have thoughts on the differences between people and animals, shoot me an email at A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at meateater.com. You know, I love the feedback. I received a ton on the vat-grown meat segment, so let's keep it going. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it 
you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. You've heard that name before because I've talked about them here on this podcast. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild axis deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed by the USDA, and they can commercially sell axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy for folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick that is as close to getting your own as you can get which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Next up, the avian bird flu desk. I have some good news about the bird flu outbreak I mentioned in episode 154. While the flu is still spreading and millions of birds have died, it may not be as bad as we feared. Up in Michigan, officials recently lifted a statewide ban on poultry and waterfowl exhibitions that had been put in place during the height of the outbreak. 30 days have passed with no new cases detected in domestic birds, so officials believe it's once again safe to let hens and roosters strut their stuff on the big stage. That's a good sign for the Midwest, but we're not out of the woods quite yet. Arizona officials recently reported their first cases of the virus, and mallard ducklings were the first birds to test positive in Washington, D.C. since the outbreak began. Even some mammals are having a hard time. In Utah, two dead foxes tested positive for the virus, though officials are not saying whether the foxes died with bird flu or from bird flu. The difference there is the flu killed them or they got killed or died while they had the flu. In either case, they likely contracted the disease when they raided hen houses in the area. That's karma, I suppose. So far, This latest outbreak has killed nearly 40 million domestic birds and infected nearly 15,000 wild birds. The real numbers are likely much higher since those are only the birds we know about. The last outbreak in 2014 and 2015 killed about 50 million domestic birds, so we're about 10 million birds away from that unfortunate milestone. Hopefully, Michigan is a sign of better days ahead. How we avoid the next outbreak has been top of mind for scientists and wildlife biologists. The disease is difficult to contain because while wild bird species die at much lower rates than domestic birds, they can still spread the disease across county and state lines. Containing wild birds like ducks and turkeys is obviously more difficult than culling the flock at the local egg factory. One 2019 study sent to me by listener Isaiah Tolo might offer a solution. The paper, published in a journal of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, considered how protected wetland areas have affected the spread of the bird flu in China. It concluded that wetland protection could be a key component in reducing the severity of bird flu outbreaks. According to the paper, every 10-mile unit increase in proximity to a protected wetland corresponded to a 4% decrease in the occurrence of an outbreak of bird flu in domestic birds. 
On the other hand, every one-mile unit increase in proximity to an unprotected wetland, such as, uh, let's say, like a uh, roadside runoff ditch, increases the chances of a bird flu outbreak by 8%. Protected wetlands give wild waterfowl a place to live without coming into close contact with either humans or domestic poultry. The paper's authors believe this separation is what drove the decreased rates of bird flu spread. And they believe wetland protection could be, quote, an effective means to control avian influenza while also contributing to avian conservation. This makes a lot of sense, but it's always nice when the data backs up what you think is probably true. Giving wild birds the buffer of protected wetlands keeps them from spreading bird flu to domestic flocks. This protects domestic poultry, but it also helps wild birds. It gives them high-quality habitat and keeps them out of the crosshairs of the general public who understandably don't appreciate ducks that spread bird flu around the country. Hunters have plenty of experience protecting wetlands, and I say we ramp up those efforts before the next bird flu outbreak rolls around. Moving on to the accountability desk. State legislators have a hard time keeping their hands out of conservation and wildlife issues. The latest example comes from Minnesota. In a recent conservation bill, elected officials inserted 12 projects that had not been vetted by the state's Commission on Natural Resources. The state's governor, Tim Waltz, slammed those legislators for sneaking in their pet projects, but then inexplicably signed the bill anyway. 40% of profits netted by the Minnesota Lottery are earmarked for the Environment and Natural Resources Trust Fund, or ENRTF. The money from this fund helps pay for projects that protect and enhance the state's air, water, wildlife, and other natural resources. Since 1991, the fund has doled out about $700 million to over 1,700 projects around the state. Normally, these projects must be vetted by the Legislative Citizen Commission on Minnesota Resources. The commission is a collection of state legislators and private citizens who review project proposals and make recommendations to the legislature. These recommendations take the form of a bill, which the legislature either passes or rejects. That all sounds well and good, but this year, legislators just couldn't keep their grubby little fingers out of the cookie jar. Of the 80 total projects in the bill, 12 of them, or about 15%, had not been vetted by the Legislative Citizen Commission. Governor Waltz also pointed out that all but one of the extra projects comes at the expense of projects that had gone through the usual process. I don't know what the new projects were, and some on the commission believe the approval process needs to be revised. The commission failed to make recommendations for next year because they weren't able to approve any proposals with the required supermajority. But the 12 new projects had never been proposed to the commission, and it's a safe bet that they wouldn't have survived the vetting process. If they could, why insert them at the last minute? To answer my own rhetorical question, because legislators don't want to have to worry about anyone holding them accountable. Speaking of accountability, well, there doesn't appear to be any in Minnesota. Conservation groups asked Governor Waltz to line-item veto the projects that had not been vetted. Instead, he wrote a strongly worded letter to legislative leaders and signed the bill anyway. This is sort of like when your mom catches you smoking behind the shed and instead of grounding you, lectures you about responsibility and lung cancer and then leaves you the pack of cigarettes when she takes off. Which, you know, is pretty much exactly what Governor Waltz just told these legislators. Conservation money is up for grabs. Accountability be damned. 
And we're going to stick on the dysfunctional politician beat. Recently introduced legislation in New Jersey would require hunters to notify all neighboring landowners at least 24 hours before all hunting activity. The legislation, dubbed the Restoring Safety Buffer Law, has been criticized as both an attack on hunting rights and private property rights. It would require all hunters, including those hunting on their own property, to send written notification to all neighboring property owners and occupants before each hunt. The letter has to include the dates and times of the proposed hunt, and hunters cannot set out until they receive written confirmation in return from those neighboring landowners and occupants. You can see how this could go horribly wrong. If you want to hunt all six days of the general rifle whitetail season, you would have to send a letter 24 hours before each of those six days. That's at least 24 letters to your neighbors on all four sides. Plus, if any of your neighbors rent their properties, both the owner and the renter have to be notified. Then, you have to wait to receive a response. The bill doesn't give hunters any recourse if they don't hear back. This would be hard enough with good neighbors. If your neighbors don't like you, this bill gives the power to prohibit you from hunting on your own property. All they have to do is not respond. Sorry, you know, I don't check the mail and oops, your season's over. The legislation was introduced by Assemblywoman Shama Hader. According to a statement accompanying the bill, it was crafted in response to a hunter who accidentally shot a pet dog with an arrow during whitetail season. The dog's owners were unaware that the neighbor's property was being hunted, and they wanted to have been notified so they could take, quote, extra precautions to protect the dog. Like, don't let the dog on the neighbor's property? It's your dog. I'm a loving, devoted, gushy dog owner. That dog's my responsibility. I have to keep her out of trouble. That's the way it works. New Jersey residents should contact their legislators and voice their opposition to Assembly Bill number 3732. That's Bill number 3732. You can also sign the petition over at the National Deer Association's website. And as always, if you have a bad bill you want to talk about, let folks know about, shoot me an email. AskHal at TheMeatEater.com Moving on to the wildfire desk. New Mexicans have been battling the largest recorded wildfires in the state's history this month as firefighters work to contain blazes that have engulfed hundreds of square miles. One of those fires, known as the Black Fire, has wreaked havoc on the Gila National Forest in southwest New Mexico. The cause of the fire is still under investigation, though the New Mexico State Fire Information website indicates that it was human-caused. As of this recording, the Black Fire has engulfed over 320,000 acres and destroyed five structures. Fortunately, since the Gila is one of the most remote national forests in the lower 48, no human fatalities have been reported. I can't say the same about wildlife. I've covered several times how wildfires don't usually pose population-level threats to animals, but threatened or endangered species can be the exception to that rule. In the Gila, biologists are taking proactive steps to protect the threatened Gila trout. Gila trout were listed as endangered in 1967, but downgraded to threatened in 2006 after restoration efforts were successful. The fish aren't in danger from the fire itself, but they are in danger of what happens after the fire burns out. Rain washes all that ash and dirt into the rivers, where it can suffocate fish and diminish their already low numbers. To protect the species, U.S. Forest Service members fly into the burned-out areas and try to capture as many fish as they can. Talk about a great job. Earlier this month, the Forest Service recovered 85 Gila trout from the main stem of Diamond Creek. 
According to a Forest Service crew member who was there, the team hiked in and shocked the river to recover as many trout as quickly as possible. The fish were placed in a specialized fish basket outfitted with oxygen tanks, and the basket was flown to the Mora Fish Hatchery near Santa Fe. All the fish survived the trip, and now biologists can use those individuals or their offspring to repopulate the river once it recovers. The U.S. Forest Service used the same strategy after the 300,000-acre Whitewater Baldy fire in 2013. They were able to successfully repopulate the rivers and creeks in the Gila using those individuals. Moving on to talk trash. Here's the thing about public land. It's public. That means we all own it. It also means we all have a responsibility to take care of it. Several stories have crossed my desk recently that tell us why and what can happen if we don't. Most recently, officials in Idaho closed a 40-acre state-owned recreation area after visitors left, quote, significant amounts of human waste and trash at the site. Park authorities also report that UTV drivers are going off-trail and damaging the site, leaving it susceptible to erosion. The area known as the East Fork of Rock Creek is located in southeast Idaho and is part of the state's endowment land. This land was granted to Idaho at statehood and is used to generate revenue for public schools. In this case, the land is used for grazing and other management activities. Rather than continuing allowing visitors to trash the site, officials closed the area to camping and UTVs beginning Wednesday, June 15th. Visitors can still walk in and use the site during the day as long as they stop leaving trash. Camping and UTV use has been banned indefinitely. Based on the tone of the press release, I don't expect that to change. Park officials have good reason to be annoyed. They experienced similar problems last year, but instead of shutting down the area, they posted signs reminding visitors to respect the land and their neighbors and refrain from leaving trash. Those folks apparently ignored the signs, and now they're facing the consequences. I've seen similar stories in Utah and New Jersey over the last few months. In Utah, officials banned overnight use of a wildlife management area after employees found trash, human feces, and broken fences. The East Fork Little Bear Wildlife Management Area is reportedly a great place to fish for brown trout in the fall, but overnight campers will no longer be allowed to enjoy it. The Utah Division of Wildlife Resources posted photos on Facebook, and they're pretty gross. Campers left entire kitchen bags full of trash and food, snapped fence posts in half, and scattered plastic water bottles and styrofoam boxes all over the site. It sort of looks like a college frat house after the only guy who remembered to take out the trash graduated. As one commenter put it, a few pigs ruin it for everyone. New Jersey officials also recently shut down portions of five wildlife management areas after receiving too many reports of people driving off-road vehicles. It's illegal to drive an ATV or dirt bike on state-owned land in New Jersey, but people are apparently doing it anyway. Cody McLaughlin, a member of the New Jersey Outdoor Alliance, told NewJersey.com that these joyriders are tearing up habitat and ruining turkey hunts. Others have reported large late-night parties and illegal swimming. I don't know what illegal swimming looks like, but I can't assume clothing is involved. The report doesn't say, but I imagine they didn't pick up their trash either. This kind of behavior is part of the reason the Interior Department just announced it will phase out sales of plastic water bottles and other single-use plastic products at national parks and on public lands over the next 10 years. Environmentalist groups claim the new policy will remove millions of pounds of disposable plastic on public land. I don't know about that. The order doesn't ban the possession of single-use plastics, just the sale of them. 
but it's clearly aimed at folks who abuse the privilege of our public land and refuse to take care of it. So here's my challenge to you. Pick up trash whenever you see it, or volunteer for trash pickup days with your local chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers or a rod and gun club near you. I know I'm speaking to the choir here, but it's never a bad time to recommit to doing your part to keep our public lands healthy and trash-free. Thank you so much for listening. That's all I've got for you this week. Remember to write in and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods at A-S-K-C-A-L. That's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.